Welcome back to From the Bridge. I'm your host, guide, and captain to discoveries along the event marketing seas. Speaking of seas, today's show is all about C words. That's words that begin with the letter C. Namely, the six essential C words you must master in winning new business. And my special guest, Chapel McAllister of music talent agency Paradigm, will be here to talk about one of the most important yet most underutilized C words, collaboration. We'll jump back up on the soapbox with a couple of other C words and finally travel out again on the road with Rick. So since we're talking C words, let's all cast off. If you've heard me speak, you know that I talk a lot about learning from failure. I I don't think you learn anything from success. I think success just makes you fat and happy and usually stupid. Um, But you learn a lot from failure. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know I like to quote from the gospel of Jimmy Buffett a lot. And obviously his signature song, Margaritaville, tells a great story that starts out at, well, it's nobody's fault. And then it, well, it could be my fault. And finally, <laughs> the realization is it's my own damn fault. Well, let me talk about my own damn fault. Um, we recently were part of a new business pitch. This is kind of rare for us. Uh, as an agency, we don't do a lot of RFPs. In fact, it's been kind of interesting. Over 17 years, this was only the fourth one we'd done in 17 years, and only the second one we'd done by ourselves. We had done two in collaboration with some other folks. Now, I had an amazing track record uh, back in the 1990s of winning uh, RFPs. I uh, had an agency that went three for three with three big wins. We won the Goodwill Games business, we won the MasterCard World Cup business, and we won the Sara Lee Olympic business. And that created a situation where Advantage International bought us. And during that period, Advantage went 16 out of 18 pitches, which is staggering to think about that. Um, And so uh, we pitched, uh, or we answered this RFP, and uh, not only did we not win, we didn't even get to the beauty pageant. We didn't even get invited to present. Uh, And it it made me think, and that led me to uh, the first C word of the day, which is contemplation. You know, the first thing you do when you when you lose, you need to you need to sit down and think about, okay, you know, what went wrong. And for me, contemplation leads always to my second C word, and that word is clarity. Clarity allows me to realize what went wrong, and then it allows me to try to figure out what I need to do about it. And what I realized was that I had failed to follow my six C words for winning new business. And I I have found that when I'm in a slump, it's usually somewhere in the system. I get lazy. I get sloppy. I get cocky. That's another C word. Uh, I I get uh, shortcutting. That's what happens. Well, in this case, we did, and it cost us. So today, I'm going to try to help you all out there. I'm going to talk about the C words for winning new business, and they are in this order. The first thing is competency. See, you need to show the particular 
brand that has reached out to you, that you have the expertise they need to do the job they want. Now, this is where we sometimes, again, we think too much about us. We give them all sorts of competencies when they really only wanted one. It's kind of like a chef who answers the brief to make Mexican street tacos, and he leads with the fact that he's a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. It might have been better to lead that he worked in Mexico City on the street. Competency, though, has to be demonstrated before you can move to the next word. And the next word is context. And this is a critical word. This is where you're going to articulate the experience that you have. But only the experience that's needed. Again, you want to show the context to show that you've done something similarly. Okay, so I know this. In this particular RFP, you know, we pounded them, and I mean pounded them with our experience. And guess what? It really didn't matter because we did not identify the context of why that experience meant for them. Then we go to what I think is clearly the most important C word of all and one we did not do at all this time. And that word is challenge. See, here's what I know. You're not hired to tell them what they know. You're hired to tell them what they don't know. You're hired to tell them some insights they haven't thought about. You're there to challenge their thinking. Now, sadly, we had a big idea to challenge their thinking, and we screwed up and didn't put it in the RFP. We were so arrogant that we saved it for the pitch. Well, we never got to the pitch, so it's our own fault. But clearly this, if you want to win business, you don't win business by having better relationships with people. You win business by challenging the way they think because that's how you begin to present yourself as being unique, which leads us to the fourth word, which is creativity. And this is where you're going to give them a solution to the challenge that you've just identified. And oh, by the way, you hope that you're the only solution to that particular challenge. Now, this is a little dangerous because this is a dance. Now, I like to dance a lot, but I really like to dance with my wife because she covers up all my mistakes. She anticipates what I'm going to do before I do it. Now, when you dance with someone you've never danced with, It's a little awkward. And this is where we are in the pitch. You don't know these people very well, and you're giving them a dance. And part of the problem is this. A lot of clients, and in this case, this client, wanted a solution. I believe that's dangerous. And here's why. I can come in and paint a picture of what I think your sponsorship should look like, but that's my picture. That's not your picture. And so I think we've got to be in a position to show enough ideas to be dangerous, but not enough to have painted the picture for them. Which leads me to my fifth C word, which is collaboration. I kind of look back over the years, and I've seen a whole lot of good sponsorships, but unfortunately very few great sponsorships. And I think it's because there was not a collaborative effort. 
You know, when I talked about painting a picture, I talk often about what we call paint by numbers. Remember paint by numbers where you gave them the outline and you had little, you had little numbers in there and that was a color red or the color blue and you painted it themselves. Well, here's what I know about sponsorship programs. You can come pitch the most creative thing at all, but then guess what? Real life gets in the way. (laughs) Real life gets in the way of big ideas. Oh, we're not legally allowed to do that. Or no, we can't fund that. Or no, I can't get my sales force behind that. No, 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 no. And this is where collaboration becomes so essential in the new business process. Uh, I mentioned MasterCard when we won the MasterCard World Cup business. I look back historically, that was the best client I ever had. (laughs) Client, that's another C word. And I think uh, clients make great agencies and not the other way around. MasterCard was a great client, but they had even better processes. They were very collaborative in the nature of the sponsorship. I remember our first World Cup organizing, internal organizing committee, had about eight people, and by the time we finished, it had over 200 people. That's how you build collaboration. And finally, it leads me to the last C word, and this is pretty essential too, and that's chemistry. Do we like each other? Do we want to socialize? I like to think, is this somebody I want to take fishing or somebody I want to cook for, or better yet, do both? And candidly, if the answer's no at my age, then I need to run for the hills because chemistry is such an essential thing. The six C's to winning business. (laughs) Well, we failed to do this. And in the words of Jimmy Buffett, it's my own damn fault. Now, after my contemplation and my clarity, am I happy about getting my ass kicked? (laughs) That would be a big no. The day I'm okay with getting my ass kicked is the day I need to get out of the business. But here's the good news. This was a wake-up call for me and for our team. We needed to remind ourselves to do what we do because there's bigger game ahead, and we're now locked and loaded. Speaking of the elusive word collaboration, my guest, Chapel McAllister, does just that each and every day. Chapel is the Senior Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at Paradigm, based in Nashville. Paradigm is a leading music talent agency representing some of the biggest artists in country music, and Chapel works with all of these musical clients across a range of areas, including brand and corporate partnerships, premium VIP experiences, product licensing, strategic investments, and other activities. Let's welcome Chapel to the bridge. Hey, Chapel, we're glad you're with us today. Thanks for having me, Rick. I'm excited. Well, you live in Music City. You work in the music business. I want to. I want to go back to the beginning. Uh, you know, were you always a music guy? Uh, you know, where'd you start, uh, and how'd you get into the business? Yeah, um, you know, I wouldn't say I grew up necessarily in like a music family. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, my introduction to music was probably like a lot of a lot of kids from older siblings, and. Um, I went in high school, I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and then 
really all I did was I, I ran track and I ran my freshman year. I went to University of North Carolina in Charlotte, ran track for them, and my whole world was running. And after my freshman year, I transferred to Auburn and decided to, to give up running and started booking bands for Auburn University for all the university-funded entertainment. Like a lot of the big uh, public schools, they had a budget every year to bring in entertainment for uh, the students, and some of that budget went to speakers and comedians, but I focused on um, on the music side. So they let me book one big show every semester, and that got me hooked on not only music, but like the music industry. Um, I did that for three years while I was at Auburn. You remember some of the bands you booked? Yeah, I booked uh, OAR. I booked Ben Harper. I booked uh, Citizen Cope. Wow, booked, that's really we had, cool. We to, yeah. We had to change. You know, the, the funny thing was it taught me because every, every semester we had to change genres to focus on a different kind of subset of, of the university population. So one one semester I needed to do a hip-hop band. Uh, one semester I needed to do rock. One semester I needed to do... Uh, country, so it kind of helped me understand that I wasn't just booking for myself and what what I liked. Um, that I had a whole kind of market to to understand, and so that you know I started doing little polls across the university to see what people were listening to. It was before there was Spotify. It was right, you know, Facebook had was fairly new, so it was hard to pull that data. So um, it taught me a little bit more about market research, I guess, in a very um, simple way. And well, during well that the time, whole the whole music industry revolves around LA, doesn't it? Lower Alabama. So uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a thriving metropolis of, of music. Um no, it was uh it was really fun. And during that so during the summers at Auburn, I would go work for a a music festival in Alabama that's no longer around called Birmingham City Stages. And that was probably the largest music um entity in, in that area. And then I also worked at a small club uh, called Workplay in Birmingham. And it was a free internship. And so to make money, I would do load in, load outs. So I was a state, local stagehand. They'd pay me $50 per, per show. Um, and so that taught me more about the live side and more about the, uh, the crew and a little bit of the quote unquote touring side, even though I was just working for one venue. So at that point, I was pretty hooked. And um, there was it was just such a fascinating kind of beast, and I was there's a lot of things to learn, and I was fortunate when I graduated. Um, my, my degree was in marketing, and um, I got a job with at the time the company was called George P. Johnson, which is one of the largest automotive yeah. experiential. Uh, yep, yeah, yep. if you were to go to the Detroit Auto Show, George P. Johnson has about seventy percent of those clients, and um, they had recently done a they had a, one of their big clients was Chrysler Chrysler Fiat and they'd recently done a partnership with Tim McGraw and Faith Hill and Jeep and um, that kind of got them into the music world and so they were trying to see if that was a, a viable uh, outlet for their business a viable kind of stream of, of revenue so they were building a small team in Nashville to focus on what we call you know what we now call tour sponsorships. Um, and leverage the experiential 
you know, the experiential marketing in a live music tour instead of just focusing on a one-off event like a festival or even an auto show. Um, so they brought me in to uh, to go on the road and be uh, and, and manage the partnership from the road. So there would be people in the office that had sold the the partnership and had agreed upon all these sponsorship deliverables, but they needed somebody, you know, to set up the gear and make sure that when executives came to shows, they were taken care of with tickets and meet and greets, whatever was agreed upon. So they were looking for someone who was young, didn't need a lot of sleep <laughs> and could do this, <laughs> could do this night after night for, for an extended period of time. Uh, and I was, I was willing and able, and I was right out of college uh, following a recession. So I was taking, I was taking whatever was given to me. So I was, uh, I went on the road, represented a brand called country financial, um, kind of a middle America, uh, insurance company. And they had done a deal with Jason Aldean, um, who at the time I, I didn't listen to a lot of country at the time. So I didn't know who Jason Aldean was. I was, I remember my interview pretending like, I knew all about them and, and, and you know, went immediately <laughs> fake, to Google afterwards. Yes, fake it till you make it. So I went on tour with Jason Aldean, representing Country Financial, and then also they had done a separate deal with Jewel, another a different tour. So I would hop between the Jason tour and the Jewel tour, which was very different experience. Um, and that got me, you know, that really – kind of immersed me into the to the live side, gave me a lot of respect for uh road crews, production managers, all the all the work that goes into a show before before a fan gets there. Yeah, the complexity leave. of the music industry is pretty staggering. And and, and you yeah. know, we're gonna talk a little bit later about about COVID, but you, you know, all those people are without jobs right now. And and that yeah. that's just yeah. heartbreaking. I, I think people don't understand the trickle down of the music industry and you got to see firsthand almost every facet of a live, yep. um, industry. Um, and, and, and so that had to be great, great training to understand. You got to navigate that effectively on behalf yeah. of both parts of the sponsorship, the, the, the sponsor and, and the music artist. Yeah. I mean, I, a hundred percent. I was I was learning how to speak two different languages. I would have one conversation with the CMO of Country Financial, and then I would turn around and be communicating something to a production manager who, highly skilled at what they do, have done you know thousands of shows in their life, but but have a different method of communication. Sometimes it's a little. Uh, sometimes I wouldn't necessarily put the CMO and the production manager in the same room. I was kind of a filter of that communication so that we could get stuff done. And I think that helps set me up because a lot of what I do now, speaking between brands and artists, they do speak two different languages. So I, at times I uh, consider myself somewhat of a translator um, because, you know, whether it's egos or timing or cadence, they're, they're on two different um Two different schedules, but still both both highly qualified and highly uh, intelligent in what they do. So um, it was a it was a great experience. I did that for I did that for about 12, 18 months, and then that company, George P. Johnson, decided to to uh, to bring me on full time, and we end up spinning that off into a side agency that was owned by George P. Johnson, but. Um, 
we decided to brand ourselves to get a little differentiator in the market mix, which was G7 Entertainment Marketing. And ultimately, I went came off the road into the office and started managing those tour sponsorships and selling those tour sponsorships from the uh, from the office. And that taught me how to pitch. Um, we also expanded. I, I ran that department for about six years. We we um, we did international tours. We did um, represented CoverGirl for several years and did all of their Taylor Swift activation and Pink activation. Did their NFL activation as well, and then um, kept the relationship with the Taylor team and started working on a lot of her tour sponsors from Sony to Elizabeth Arden to Keds to Diet Coke. Um, so that you know we got in a good rhythm with that team as well as those as well as her brand partners, um, did a big U2 Salesforce tour that got me a lot of experience in Europe, um, Australia, New Zealand. So really kind of expanded that, expanded my world into an international standpoint um, from arenas and stadiums, um, talent focus. Um, But the, the biggest piece there, I think it taught me how to, how to pitch. And kind of what my, I think everyone's got a different style of selling and different style of pitching. And I, I kind of got into a good rhythm. Um, and then after six, almost six and a half years at G7, I moved to artist management, um, a boutique artist management company in Nashville called Sandbox Entertainment. And we represented, you know, I'd worked with pop a lot during G, at G7, but Sandbox was pretty much exclusively country. Um and represented um, Faith Hill and Casey Musgraves, and Kelsey Ballerini, Dan and Shay, Johnny Cash Estate, as well as several others. Um, so I, you know, I had a I had a roster of about ten to twelve artists, but I was able to really know everything they were doing. So it helped me helped me pitch and talk about what what kind of strategic partnerships made sense because I had access to to everything they were doing, all the information. Um, and so we, I was there for about three and a half years. We did some really, really fun stuff. We did a documentary on Tim and Faith called Soul to Soul around their, um, kind of reunion Soul to Soul tour, 2017 and 18. Um, we did, uh, I got to launch a wine brand for a little big town called Four Cellars. And then ultimately that spun off into a second brand called Day Drinking, um, which was a really fun project and taught me a lot about how to create a brand from scratch. Um, you know, how to, how to work with a partner. That's not just a, you know, 12 months relationship. This was, this was going to be an evergreen project and something that the band had a lot of sweat equity in. And, um, you know, if it, when, when it, when it has success, they have success. Um, so it's a very much a different relationship than here are the deliverables and here's your here's your guarantee. You know, it's interesting um, about the collaboration process. I, I think the artist really has to understand too. Um, you, you talked about Taylor Swift. I'll tell you a quick Taylor Swift story. We um, we were involved with a project <clears throat> with an agency called Aim Marketing Solutions. A friend of mine the late Christy Atkins uh, had created this agency and she created a program in Nashville called sound and speed 
that was the intersection of NASCAR and country music. And it benefited both the Country Music Hall of Fame and the Victory Junction gang camp in Randleman, North Carolina, that had been set up by Cal Petty when his son Adam was killed um, for um, children that had disabilities. And uh, uh, a leading SunTrust executive was a guy named Brian Williams in, uh, in Nashville. And Brian was tragically killed in a boating accident. And the year after that, um, we put on Sound and Speed. And um, Alan Jackson was our headliner. Um, Brian had banked Alan when he first came to Nashville, and he, he felt like he wanted to say goodbye to his friend by doing this event. Well, it was a great concert at, um, <clears throat> at Bridgestone, but there was a young girl named Taylor Swift who opened that concert. <laughs> and, and I'd never seen so many little girls in my life that were there. And she, she, she finished her set and said, and I want to meet all y'all. <laughs> and I'll be in the concourse uh, next to this pink Ford truck, and yeah. I'll sign autographs. Well, yeah. we had to pay an extra day of rent because she signed autographs till 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And my wife left there saying, I, I know she's talented, but she's got something else. She's got grit, and she gets it. Um. And, and it was just a great story. She was very young at that time to watch her understand her fan. Uh, it, yeah. it, it was really kind of neat to just watch it, just to watch it. And, and the, the uncanny thing I remember about her was every little girl that came up to get an autograph, she was intentional about that was the most important conversation she was having that day. Yeah. You know, I'm, I've seen very few people that can do that. You know, so many people are usually looking around the room for, you know, who else do I need to talk to? And she just she just had a knack. So I guess she you did some great partnerships for her. Um, but I think it starts with the artist, doesn't it? A hundred percent. You know, no one knows fan engagement better than she does. And, and I think there's a lot of artists that that kind of followed suit from that. Um, certainly as we are in a a social media age for sure. Um, and that engagement, that engagement is live and also engagement on socials. You know, there's a lot of artists that will respond directly to all the direct messages they get on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, but it's really cool to see it also on the live side when they can spend some time with fans and, and, um, but as far as, you know, to your original question about collaboration, an idea or, or, a brand that a artist is passionate about, it, it makes all the difference. Um, you know, I think consumers and fans are smarter than they've ever been before. And so they, they can smell the phony. They, yeah. they can smell the phony. Yeah. They can, they can see through it. They can see through, you know, a, a paid for post situation um, on it, on, on Instagram or whatever the platform may be. So, I think that uh, it makes all the difference if there's an authentic brand story, if there is a natural connection or general passion between that artist and the brand, or if there's an idea that an artist has that says, hey, I really want to do this. It's going to add value to my fans. It's going to add value to my album release, my tour, whatever it may be. You know, you take that nugget and you 
sometimes you're finding the right partner that fits that. So I think um, that makes a big a big difference in our world. Well, not only do you, do you collaborate with the artist, I, I find the music industry to be extremely complex. We've been talking about the C words today. <laughs> and the complexity yeah. of the music industry between an artist having a, an agent, a manager, a booking agent, a publicist, a publisher. <laughs> I mean, it's it's complicated. <laughs> it doesn't get more complicated. <laughs> Um, it is complicated, you know, we, us in the, in the partnership world and the strategic partnership space and music, you know, we, we compete not just against other artists or other brands, but also we compete against all aspects of the entertainment industry, um, specifically sports for sure. And when, you know, I always envy sports because one, you know, from a, just from a dollar standpoint, sports is, is substantially higher than music. Uh, in the in the sponsorship space, but the simplicity I envy the simplicity of it. <clears throat> um, it, it from a structure standpoint, I, you know, if you if you want to partner with an athlete, there's one route. If you want to partner with a league, there's a route. If you partner, you know, it's 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 pretty clean um, as opposed to music, which is highly fragmented um, from a label standpoint, from an ownership of rights, from a decision maker gatekeeper, whatever you want to call it. So, um, a lot of, you know, a lot of times it's, it's me helping educate buyers or helping educate brands on how to navigate the space in general. And And, do do, um, do you find yourself doing the same on the other side? I mean, do you have to, you know, you work with a lot of artists and do you, do you you have to educate in, in some cases the artists and their management teams too? Definitely have to educate them depending on their level of experience in the brand space. Um, I think a big piece that's that's tricky is artists they put out they put out their art and when they, when it's finished, obviously there's a there's a plan of how to release the music. But sometimes that plan is 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 two, three, four month lead times. And they're like, you know, there's there's a window that makes the, the albums done. Let's go ahead and release it, and and the the notice can be a matter of weeks or just a couple of months, as opposed to brands. Oftentimes, as you know, yeah, they could be planning 12, 24 months ahead. Um, so it's really sometimes timing is the biggest obstacle. You know, I have I might have an artist come and say, "Hey, I really love this brand, what they're doing. I want to get on this campaign that they're doing. Or I want to I want to partner with them on the album release that's coming up next month." And that conversation is a, is a tough one with the brand because they, they probably planned that campaign or they probably have spent their dollars maybe 18 months before. Um, so a lot of it is, is educating the artists and artist teams on kind of what this long game is, how to build these relationships. Every once in a while you get lightning in a bottle where the budget's there, the timing's there on the brand side and the artist is excited and it's, and it's go, but um, that's not the norm. And, and, in my experience. So sometimes as we talk to brands, I always try to encourage, you know, whether you call it a slush fund or whether you call it whatever you want to call it, but to, to allocate some money, if you're, if you're wanting to spend in the music space, just to allocate some money that, that is not um, planned 24, you know, 12 or 24 months ahead, but it allows you a little bit of agility when opportunities come up because t- sometimes those opportunities you know, sometimes you have an artist that has a nonprofit or charitable component and there's a event they're going to throw and it's going to be a great look 
maybe it gets TV pickup, maybe it gets a lot of press pickup, whatever it may be. But that comes together in a matter of weeks. And if a brand is there and has has the ability to partner with that, it can be a really can be a really great thing. I, I really agree with that. You know, I, I I've spent my entire career on the agency side, so I've never been on the on the corporate side, I've worked with probably 200 Fortune 500 companies in my career. But that's the, that's great advice to say if, if you had a slush or an opportunistic fund, you're going to get so much more value from that. Because when that big opportunity comes, if you just have a little bit of dollars to spend, you can get huge, huge return on that. And, and, yet, and yet they don't do it. They just – and I don't know yeah. – if there's a fear they're factor, dealing with finance yeah, departments. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're, they're dealing with a lot of uh, department, legal departments, whatever it may be. And I, and I get it. We've all got kind of our, our obstacles internally. Um, but I think, and I hope, you know, it'd be interesting with, with COVID because COVID may on the brand side, COVID may require these brands to be more agile because obviously they're trying to reshuffle you know, even in the music space, but outside of that, they're, they're reshuffling marketing campaigns. They're reshuffling a lot of dollars very quickly. Um, and that may be a trend that, and I, I hope it's a trend that occurs, or at least there's a percentage of those funds that, that can be allocated to more agile initiatives. Um, uh, but it'll be interesting to see. We're, we're not going to know that until we until we get on the other side. Well, we've had lots of C words today, COVID being one. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, never waste a crisis, another C word. <laughs> uh, this is a clear crisis. What have y'all had to do? What have you had to do to pivot? You know, an artist has got a, <clears throat> an album dropping and they can't tour anymore or they've got, yeah, uh, yeah. they've lost a tour or they've got uh, band members that they're trying to help feed. Talk about the the, the, the musical pivot uh, that's had to happen yeah it's really all over the board it's so interesting to see you know so at at my at paradigm we represent about uh 2800 different artists and um and so we've got i get to see artists of all different genres different places in their career and, and how they're reacting to this but as far as some broad strokes you know uh touring revenue has come to a complete halt and depending on the genre, depending on the artist, but you're you're talking about somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of an artist's revenue just completely at a halt. Um, some artists have saved up for a rainy day. and It's certainly raining um, and some haven't. And so depending on those scenarios, is it, it depends on what an artist is, is willing to want to do or engage in for additional revenue. Um the ones that are they're in a good place, I find that they're they're not reducing their numbers for spon- for partnerships or outside opportunities. They're like they're they're pretty much I'm gonna sit and weather the storm. I'm in a good place and hopes that next year we come back to a degree and then twenty twenty two we're we're back at full tilt. Um a lot of artists are not in those positions. So me kind of overseeing some strategic partnerships, which couldn't be anything from book deals to um, podcast opportunities to brand partnerships, which is a lot of what I do. My phone's been ringing a lot, as you can imagine. Um, the brand space has continued to stay active, but certainly not at the doll- at the pre-COVID dollars. So with that, I'm getting offers for artists at a, 
I don't, you know, 50, maybe even 25% of what I would normally get. And I'm absolutely presenting those offers because I don't know where some of these artists, you know, every artist is in a different scenario. So I'm making sure that they're seeing all the opportunities come by. Um, trying to identify brands that, that are spending money in the space, uh, whether it's with virtual experiences or digital content or whatever it may be. Um, so the pivot, you know, the, the pivot, and I think what will come from this time on the artist side, I think it's going to, um, I think the artists will look more at strategic partnerships, whether it's brand or any sort of brand extension. So, um, I think you'll, you'll see artists looking more at maybe creating lifestyle brands that take a little time to get going, but can produce, you know, mailbox money and some revenue for them long-term. Um, I think they'll be more op- open to brand opportunities, assuming it's the right fit for them. Um, I, you know, I, I think once it'll be really interesting in five years to look back and see what has it really affected in the music space. Um, are we, we back? We, we all work? want 2020 hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I very much look forward to 2020 hindsight because I think we're, I think there's a bit of a scramble. Um, you know, we're, I think we're going to be the last ones to come back in regards to large scale. I think sports, you know, and even sports right now is, you're seeing stuff change by the week. I'm sure you're seeing. No, I, I'm seeing it change by the um, hour. I mean, yeah. I, 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 it used to be my idea long-term playing in COVID was tomorrow. And now it's like an hour from now. It's every yeah, day there's yeah. a, there's a bombshell. And, uh, right. Yeah. And I, and I, and so, I know y'all are seeing it too. Yeah. And, 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 <clears throat> you know, the less sports play, the worse, the, the worse it is for us. So, you know, you take NHL and NBA out of it because they're in a bubble and we can't we can't be in a bubble like they are. But when you look at college football, that's, you know, conference by conference starting to push to spring or reduce their season or make conference only play. No fans, that kind of stuff. And you look at NFL, which still is trying to figure out what they're doing. Um, it's I don't know. It, I, I was hopeful that we would see some large scale sporting events this fall, but I'll, I think I'll believe it when I see it, but that's going to delay everything for us because a big thing, a big difference between, well, there's a lot of differences obviously between sports and, and music events, but a, a big piece of it is in music, there's a person or a band to point the finger at. Even when you look at scalping, you, anything, anything negative associated with the large music event there is a one individual person or band that a fan can say you did this whether they're right or wrong you know i paid four hundred dollars for a ticket to xyz show well they don't say that they paid that on the secondary market and that they missed the original pre-sale or they missed the original on sale blame the band they blame the band but when that happens in a sporting when it happens at a lakers game they don't point the finger at lebron james or or the coach or even the organization has the ability to kind of kind of slough that off yeah deflect yeah. yeah deflect right and so with that we're under a high amount of what I would consider kind of fan scrutiny. We're under a magnifying glass a little, a, a lot more. And as we get into post COVID shows, we have to remember that because as you've seen with certain artists that have tried to come back too early and just gotten completely destroyed from a PR standpoint, we have to consider, well, obviously we have to consider our fans health and safety 
as we do our band and crew and everybody associated with the tour. But even, you know, in addition to that, there's a really P- a high PR magnifying glass under, under those artists. And so they've got to be, I th- that's why I think they'll definitely be the last to come back. Um, and, and so we're, you know, we're, we're obviously hopeful that 2021 uh, we can have shows and whether it's Q2, Q3, whenever it is, but um, we got to turn the faucet back on at some point on live shows, but also being very cautious of fan safety and, and crew safety. Yeah. I'm just not sure it'll happen without a vaccine or without some sort of real significant treatment. You know, the music experience is, in my opinion, the concert experience is so intimate you know, yeah. you're, you're, you may be in it. It's intimate even with a, a, a stadium show. I mean, you're yep. it's a collective experience that you're sharing. Um, and, and, and you know, like you said, you, you, you it's not a made for television event. You know, the NFL can get by even yeah. with nobody in the stands. We're going to stay home and watch games. I mean, I'm watching NASCAR with nobody in the stands and we're still it's still compelling. I, I'm not going to watch an artist play an empty you lose the intimacy. You lose the the right. whole kind of deal, and that's really hard. And, that, and the other thing I'm really concerned about, and it, what's heartbreaking, again, I'm 66 years old. I'm looking at so many young people that have missed out on graduations and proms and and weddings and, and you know all those kinds of things. Well, I think about young musicians that that really mm-hmm. you know came up through the grassroots. You, you're building a following club by club. And all those clubs are closed right now. And so I think you're going to see what I call a gap. We're going to to miss out on, I think, some maybe talented young people that have not had the opportunity for that kind of exposure. Um, And and that's a real real tragedy, too. You know, we think of the big artists, but, you know, the, the, the music industry consistently refuels itself with new emerging talent. And there's yeah. no place for them to play right now. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're going to, uh, you know, a whole different conversation, but we're going to have to take care of our small venues. Um, I think when the industry comes back, it'll start from, from clubs into theaters and to amphitheaters and the arenas and, and into stadiums. But um, we have to, we, we got to keep the clubs and the club owners open um, so that those artists have venues to play. Um, because even when we come back, if those venues aren't there, th- there's going to be a lot of barriers to entry. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I and I hope some big, I hope some big artists will support you in that. I've told this story, uh, before I was, a, I think I was a, either a senior in high school or, a I think I was a senior in high school or maybe I was a freshman in college. There was a, a little club in Atlanta called the Great Southeast Music Hall in Broadview Plaza that the first place I ever saw Jimmy Buffett. And anyway, it was, you know, at that time, Georgia was an 18 year old state. You could buy beer at 18. And, and my little brother who was not 18 knew that he could go with me and drink beer. Um, and yeah. so, cause you'd get a bucket of beer nobody bothered you. And, and so we showed up one night to drink beer. We had no idea who the artist was. Well, the artist was a, a band called the Rolling Thunder Review Band. Okay, Rolling Thunder Review Band. I had no idea. I mean, but you know, we're there to drink beer and to hang out and have a good time. So the seven o'clock show, and out comes the Rolling Thunder Review Band: Bob Dylan, Roger McGuinn, um, <laughs> yeah, um, um, Joan Baez, um, 
I'm trying to think of the, who the fourth one was. I, I, I was like, go pee now because we're <laughs> not leaving our seat for the 10 o'clock show either. I mean, yeah. And, and they had played these small clubs kind of incognito that year. Well, let me tell you, the 7 o'clock show, there wasn't anybody. And again, this is pre-cell phone, but they, somebody wore out the payphone. You know, yeah. and by the ten o'clock show, you couldn't move. I didn't care. I was on the front row, uh, yeah. and and I would like to see some big artists kind of help bring the small clubs back. You think that could happen? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you know it's all going to be tied to an artist story because those clubs are a, a part of those artists' DNA. Very few artists jump from first album into arenas and stadiums. It's a, there's oftentimes, and it, even more so now than even 20 years ago, but there is, they're slugging it out in the, in the clubs and sometimes even the fraternities and then the clubs and then the theaters. Um, so I think, I think you, what you're going to see is you're going to see it localized where an artist from Nashville has a, has a tie to the basement or has a tie to exit in, um, you know, so many great bands came out of Athens, Georgia, some of the great venues there. Um, there's, I, so I think what you'll see is you'll see as the industry comes back, you'll see kind of localized um, support from artists and, and the venues that were a part of their story. I, um, I'm a big fan of a place in, uh, in Texas called Green Hall. It's the yeah. Oldest continuously operating honky tonk in Texas, yeah. like 1850. Yeah, wonderful place. And mm-hmm. of course, there was a story. There was a student at San Marcos, now Texas State University, and he played in the house band at Green Hall like two nights a week when there were no headliners. And, and one day he told the, the lady that ran the place he was going to Nashville to do a, a demo. That guy was George Strait. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and 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 historically, George has always come back and played at Green Hall. Um, yeah. You know, which is kind of cool. Um, you, you don't forget where you came from, and and I'm hoping that's going to ha- happen. You know, we've kind of touched on this, but let's close with this. Um, what are we going to learn uh, from this, and what's ahead for the music industry that you think is going to be a good thing? Um. It's a great question. Um, I think what we're going to learn is that, you know, before in the music industry, I think people prepared for recessions and how to um, how to get through those time periods when people might not be paying $100 for a ticket, but they might be paying um, $50 for a ticket. I don't think we ever prepared for the faucet and for the faucet to be turned completely off. Um, so I think from the business manager side, I think it'll completely restructure how aggressive the industry is financially, both on the personal finances and on the business, on the LLC side for artists. Um, I think when we come back, I think you'll see artists, maybe the production changes, at least in the first year or two where it's not, you know, we've got to a point where every show had pyro and every show had, huge video screens and stages that moved and B stages and all the stuff. I think we might see that reel back a little bit and and the the larger scale shows could focus more just on the music um, and bringing it back to to that place, um, at least in the short term. It might be maybe something that continues past that. 
Yeah, I think um, fan, I think fans will be better, ready for that, even that level of simplicity. They just want to be back yeah. together. I told they somebody the other day, I, I think our the event marketing industry, sport, entertainment, I, I think it's like a giant champagne bottle. Uh, it's on ice. When we pop it, it's going to pop. It's going to yeah. pour yeah. like crazy. We just don't know when we can pop the cork, and that's yeah. the frustration. Yeah, agreed. Um you know, I think from the festival side, there's going to be some some stuff that doesn't make it through. I think it's going to be consumers are going to come back and they they're going to be they're going to they're going to want to go to a bunch of stuff. But we also may be in somewhat of a you know financial, depending on how the next few months go, we might be in a whole different place financially, um, where fans are going to be very selective as to what they're going to. They may only go to one or two shows next year if they go to a show. So. Um, I think we're going to have to be really deliberate in what we do from the live side. And, um, and I think, you know, I think fans, I, th- I think artists are going to be more open to the stuff that I, I do over at Paradigm, whether it's looking into books and, and book, book offers, looking into partnership offers, as we mentioned earlier, building a brand themselves and, and finding what I call white space, which is areas in the marketplace that are not cluttered, like, beauty space has a lot of celebrity endorsements. Um, but there are other aspects and there are other product lines and categories that might not be as, as cluttered. Um, and so finding that white space and, and seeing if there's opportunity there, stuff that takes a lot longer lead time, but can also be good kind of mailbox money, good, good long-term, um, business initiatives that an artist can contribute to. Well, we've spent, uh, we've spent all our time today talking about C words. And I guess the C word that, that kind of sums up the whole place where we are is the word challenging. Uh, but we got to still do our jobs. I'm reminding every brand I talk to, no one ever saved themselves back to prosperity. Um, yeah. you know, you, you're going to have to spend, appropriately and effectively. And I'm sure that's the same kind of conversations you're having with brands. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that it's so interesting because like I spoke to a brand the other day and their stock is at an all time high, but they have cut their entertainment dollars by 40%. And that was fascinating to me. Um, I think one, I think brands are, are, while they may be, some brands may be doing fine. They are preparing for a storm ahead from a financial standpoint. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of, you know, unfortunately, when times get hard, and that can look a lot of different ways, but the the market, unfortunately, marketing dollars get cut. Typically, it's like a formula they use. And to your point, I feel that to me, it's a time to really get smart with your marketing dollars. And, and music or sports might not be the best route for, for a brand, but it, but it, for a brand that is actively playing in that, to me, it's a time to, you know, maybe not double down, but, but get aggressive in that space. There's going to be some great opportunities in the space. Um, it's going to take a while for everything to level out. I think there's going to be some opportunities at, at, um, at dollar amounts that, that will be a steal for a brand. And I think that, I think it's a time to get, to get aggressive. Um, but that's a you know that's a conversation that's always tough to have with the brand because they've got like like we said earlier they've got um, a lot of internal obstacles to kind of overcome. 
Well, it is a challenging time. It is a complex time, but I know you're going to be up to the challenge. You've uh, you've had a great career so far, but I know this. You're just getting started, and uh, it's going to be fun to kind of watch um, coming out of this, you know, what you do, what Paradigm does, what your artists do. And I can't thank you enough, pal, for um, sharing some of your uh, insights and expertise to us today from the bridge. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Let's jump back up on that soapbox and talk about yet another C word, compromise. As of this recording, Congress has still failed to pass anything to help people suffering from this pandemic. Now, I'm a fiscal conservative, and I know you cannot just keep printing money, but we have to do something. People are hurting. People can't pay their rent. People can't feed their children. Both sides of the aisle need to give on some things. The American people, yes, those same people who actually pay the salaries of all persons in Congress, now need a return on that investment. We need to compromise. You know, even rivals can compromise. I recently finished a book a biography on Frank Bannock. Frank Bannock was the longtime CEO of the Hearst Corporation. He had started out selling uh, classified ads for one of the Hearst newspapers in San Antonio, Texas, rose from that to be the publisher of the San Antonio Light, and then later became a senior executive in New York with Hearst, and then a long, long, long time, in fact, a two-time CEO of the Hearst Corporation. In the book, He had a bunch of pictures of the famous people he had been with, and one of my favorites was a picture of a laughing Catherine Graham and a laughing Richard Nixon. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Catherine Graham was the publisher of the Washington Post. The Washington Post exposed Watergate. Without her exposing Watergate, Nixon would have never resigned, and yet here we were a dozen years later, And they had found common ground enough to be laughing together. I need Congress to laugh together a little bit more. I need them to collaborate a little bit more. I need them to compromise a little bit more. Because the lack of compromise is leading us to another C word. And that word is catastrophe. Since we've spent all day talking about C-words, here's a final couple of C-words on the road with Rick. Two words, crab cakes. (laughs) Now, here's a dilemma. I live on a tidal river, and I catch crabs all the time, and I make amazing, and I mean amazing, crab cakes. So it's extremely hard for me to enjoy restaurant crab cakes, with one exception. My good friend Tom Pierce took me to a place called Charlie G's Restaurant in Lafayette, Louisiana. And here's what we ordered. A large bowl of dark roux smoked duck and andouille sausage gumbo with rice. And then they add a crab cake on top of the gumbo. This crab cake is amazing. All crab meat with very little filling, just enough to hold it all together. You dip your spoon into the 
crab cake and then plunge it down into the gumbo. And you eat it all up, bite after bite. And then finally, you take that amazing French bread from the Langlinaise Bakery and you sop up everything else in the bowl with that bread so no one even has to wash your bowl when it goes back. And then you stop and listen for the sound of angels singing. That's right, the sound of angels on the road with Rick. Thanks for being with me today and to our terrific guest, Chapel McAllister. We'll see you again soon from the bridge.